Good morning. It was uh, reported um, this morning that last night John Tafalter thought that he'd got the coronavirus, uh, but after the doctors examined him, they discovered it was just Saturday night fever. And he is definitely going to be staying alive, even though his chills are multiplying. Sorry. We're going to be looking at uh, this passage in Luke, uh, chapter 9. You might want to keep that uh, your service sheet open on, on that page. It's quite something, these lights, isn't it? I feel like I'm sort of on stage or something. Immediately after the death of Herod the Great, uh, four years before Jesus' birth, there was a serious revolt against Roman rule in Galilee led by Judas ben Ezekiel. And in response, Pharaoh, the Roman general in charge of the province of Syria, did what the Romans did best. He brutally put down the rebellion and he crucified 2,000 of the rebels. So the Galilee of Jesus' boyhood knew all about crosses. And it's probable that the people that Jesus preached to may well have lost family members, friends, neighbors to Roman brutality. So when Jesus in our passage said to the crowd, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must take up his cross daily and follow me, they would not have heard that as a spiritual metaphor about self-denial. They would have understood that Jesus was telling them that in this present political and social environment, 
following him was a risky business. It might lead to your death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed by the Nazis, knew a lot about the cost of following Jesus. And he said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, if we're to understand uh, the Gospels accounts of Jesus, and particularly this passage, we need to know something about the world in which Jesus lived, ministered, and died. The social, political, and religious environment in which Jesus' mission and ministry took place. So when Peter confesses that he believes Jesus is God's Messiah, what did he mean? And when people at the time... Uh, And what did people at the time also believe about the Messiah? And what he would do. And when they thought about the coming of God's kingdom, what were they expecting? Now, we're currently doing a series in Luke's Gospel called All Eyes on Jesus. And what we find in Luke's Gospel is that Jesus often surprised people. He often said and did things that shocked people. And he behaved in ways that people did not expect. And today's passage is no different. So as we look at this passage, I want to explore two questions. What does it mean for Jesus to be God's Messiah? And as God's anointed one, as his agent on earth, what was he going to do? And how was the kingdom of God going to come about through his actions? And secondly, what does it mean to be a disciple of the Messiah? So before we look at that, let's just, let's just pray. Father, this morning I pray that you will speak to us through your word. I pray that you'll encourage us this morning. Stir us up when we need to be stirred. And Father, equip us to love and to serve you where we are here in Kendall. Because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean for Jesus to be God's Messiah? Now at the beginning of the passage, Jesus is alone with his disciples. And he asks them, Who do people say that I am? And there's lots of different opinions. Some people think that he's John the Baptist, perhaps come back from the dead because he seemed an awful lot like John the Baptist. Some thought he was Elijah. Now, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament who who didn't die. He was taken up to to heaven uh, by God in a chariot of fire. And there was an expectation that before the Messiah came, Elijah would return and he would prepare the way for the Messiah. And then other people just thought he might be one of the prophets who've come back to life. But what all these things had in common was that people believed that Jesus was more than just an ordinary teacher. There was something special about him, something uh, striking And then Jesus puts his disciples on the spot. And he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? 
And Peter says, you are God's Messiah. Now, Messiah is a a Hebrew uh, term, and it means God's anointed one or anointed king. And in the Old Testament, kings were anointed, priests were anointed. Sometimes other people were anointed for special purposes. And as we look at the Old Testament, we see there that in the prophetic writings, there emerged this idea of a kind of special anointed one, a coming king in the line of David, who would come and establish God's kingdom. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek, and instead of using the word Messiah, the writers used the Greek word Christos, from which we get the, we get the word Christ. But uh, Christ and Messiah, they mean exactly the same thing, the anointed one or the anointed king. And this title for Jesus is used over 560 times in the New Testament. Now, we know, don't we, that Christ is not Jesus' surname. I mean, he's not Mr. Christ. I mean, maybe you don't. That's okay if you don't. But, Je- but Christ is not Jesus' surname. And the problem is that we use the name Jesus Christ often in a way that fails to acknowledge what the title Christ actually says about Jesus. And we sometimes fail to realize that when the writers of the New Testament use the title Christ, they're saying something very important about who Jesus is, what his mission is, and what it means for us to follow him and to be his disciple. We've severed the title Christ from its Hebrew origins. It's a bit like taking a plant out of its natural soil or environment and planting it in a plant pot. So here's a radical thought for you. Maybe we should go through our New Testament and cross out the word Christ and write in Messiah or Anointed One, or as Tom Wright does in his translation, King Jesus. But please don't do that with the church Bibles because I might get in trouble for that one. So when Peter confesses that Jesus is God's Messiah, what does he mean? Well, Peter, along with many of his fellow Jews, believed that from their reading of Scripture that when the Messiah came, he would do three things. He would cleanse or restore the temple. He would defeat the enemies that threatened God's people, Israel, and deliver them from oppression. Now, for many people at that time, that meant that he would defeat the Romans and he would send them packing. And then thirdly, he would bring about God's kingdom rule of justice and peace, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. But what they did not expect was a Messiah who was going to suffer and die. Both in Matthew and Mark's account of this event, after Jesus has spoken about his forthcoming arrest and execution, Peter takes him to one side and he tells him off. No, this is not going to happen. 
It's not part of the plan. It's not what we signed up for. Now, I'm paraphrasing slightly there. In Mark's account, Jesus tells Peter he's seeing things from a human perspective. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus detected in Peter's words the temptation of the devil to establish his kingdom by sidestepping the cross. And a kingdom without a cross is always the devil's temptation. So what relevance does the idea of Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the king, what relevance does that uh, have to us? How do, we, how do we apply that to our life in Kendall in the 21st century? Well, let's take those three expectations that people had of the Messiah. Because they're good expectations, they're grounded in uh, scripture. So first of all, cleanse or restore the temple. Now the temple was at the heart of the Jewish religion. It was the place where people met God. Of course, some were excluded, the Gentiles were excluded from the temple. And at the heart of the temple was the Holy of Holies, which was separated by a curtain. And only the priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And that's on the Day of Atonement. Now, at the moment of Jesus' death, something amazing happened. Because that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was rent in two. And, it's, uh, and, that, and it, it was as though now, through Jesus the Messiah, all could enter the presence of God. The writer to the Hebrews, using this imagery, tells us that we can now boldly enter into the presence of God. We can approach the throne of our gracious God with confidence where we will receive mercy and grace. Jesus has made it possible by his death for all to know and experience God's presence. And when Jesus cleansed the temple, and that's the term that the gospel writers use to describe Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers and driving out those who were buying and selling animals. But cleansing the temple was something that only the Messiah was supposed to do. And there are hints in the gospel that Jesus was not just cleansing the temple of corruption and greed, but he was also overthrowing the tables of the religious establishment. The new wine of the kingdom could not be contained in the old wineskins of religious ritual. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the focus of God's presence would no longer be in the temple, He was building a living temple of people, a new humanity, a messianic community. As the New Testament says, we now are the temple of the Holy Spirit, God taking up residence in our lives. And then the second expectation, how did Jesus fulfill this? The Messiah would defeat Israel's enemies, defeat the enemies of the people of God. 
Now, when we read Jesus' words about his forthcoming death and what's involved in following him, he seems a bit like a football manager who says, come and join my team and learn how to lose. Uh, My hometown uh, team of crew have been using that strategy very effectively now for a number of years. But far from being a, a defeat, far from being defeated by the cross, Jesus was victorious. He defeated the evil spiritual rulers and false gods of this world. Paul says in Colossians 2.15, In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The message version uh, says this. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants of the universe of their sham authority and marched them naked through the streets. Now this is the imagery of a a victorious Roman general returning to Rome. And with him he brings all of his captives, all the defeated enemy, showed off to all the people. Also on the cross, Jesus the Messiah broke the power of sin and death. And this was confirmed by his resurrection, by his death, resurrection and ascension. Jesus is declared as the true king of this world. And this leads us to the third expectation, that the Messiah would bring about the kingdom of God. But how was he going to do that? Well, I think the answer is found in Jesus' rather puzzling statement in verse 27. I tell you the truth that some standing here will not die before they see the kingdom of God. Mark says, see the kingdom of God come in power. And I think Jesus is saying, you will see the kingdom come in great power through my death and resurrection. That's what those in Jesus' audience will see. Jesus is king, and his kingdom has come in great power. And the kingdom will finally come. In verse 26, Jesus tells of returning in his glory and the glory of the Father. Now note that when Jesus talks of his return to earth, he doesn't say that he will come back and take all these people to heaven. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, John hears the angels declare, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And in Revelation 21, we're told about a new heaven and a new earth. God making his home among his people and John says I heard a loud shout from the throne saying look God's home is now among his people he will live with them and they will be his people God himself will be with them he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain all these things are gone forever isn't that something to look forward to That's our hope as Christians. 
And this is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. This is our hope. The world become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just draw all this together. We are disciples of the Messiah. We are followers of Christ the King, whose kingdom has come in power through his death and resurrection. And it's a powerful kingdom. And it will continue to advance until the day when the world will become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we pray, your kingdom come. That's what we work for as Jesus' disciples. That's our priority. And it's in the context of that that we understand Jesus' teaching about denying ourselves and taking up our cross. It's not self-denial for its own sake. It's a self-denial of a sports person who keeps in, keeps to a strict diet and forgoes some of the things that they like. And they commit themselves to a fitness regime. It's the self-denial of a musician who denies themselves quite legitimate things, perhaps going out with friends, watching the TV, other leisure activities, in order to practice, in order that they can be the best that they can be. Jesus is talking about our priorities. Both the sports person and musician deny themselves for a higher purpose. And as Jesus' disciples or apprentices... We make being with him, becoming like him, and learning to do what he did our priority. We take up our cross daily because we have to work out in everyday life what this actually means for us to have the priorities of the kingdom. But let's remember too, our brothers and sisters in many parts of the world, who for following King Jesus does mean imprisonment and even death. And perhaps it's appropriate for us to remind ourselves in this kind of period of anxiety about coronavirus that Jesus is King, that he is Lord, that he is in charge. And we, as the people of the Messiah, serve a mighty king. And we look forward to that day when the earth will become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are part of something far bigger than ourselves. Thank you for the hope that you've given us. Thank you that we know that things are not going to end badly, but they're going to end well. And we look forward to that time when there will be no more sickness, no more coronavirus, no more death, no more crying or tears. All these things will be a thing of the past. And so we thank you and praise you. Amen.